Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Hey man, I'm alright. I'm thankfully free of uh, animal attacks this week. I have Good. no further updates on any encounters I've had with the wildlife of Sheffield. It's mm. remained a relatively uneventful week for me and my finger. Cool. Uh, I, I have also, I mean I hung out with my parents' dog over the last couple mm. of days for Thanksgiving and I saw a donkey today. That's about it. Where, where where did you see a donkey? My parents live in a fairly rural part of Florida. And so their house abuts onto a couple of farms. And they've recently got a couple of young donkeys that are constantly running around and kind of walking up to people and desiring to be nuzzled. So, mm. uh, so they're, they're very sweet. But I also have not got near them because uh all i think of when i think of donkeys is stories about people getting just kicked in the head <laughs> oh, and yeah. uh losing motor function and things like that so i'm per- perfectly happy to stand on the other side of a fence and, and pat them mm. they're kind of um nature's great goofballs the donkey but mm. they they've got a bad side any kind of hoofed animal if it kicks you yes you're in real trouble my brother's ex-girlfriend and i will stress that she's not dead he just broke up with it. They had other problems. I don't want to get into it. Good. But like she got kicked by a horse and it dislocated her shoulder, like like oh. popped it right out. And yeah, she was kind of destroyed by that. It kicked her right in the chest. Can you imagine? I couldn't. I'd Oof. probably just I'd probably just fly into the sun if a horse kicked me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what feels like a real kick to the chest. Watching the Gotti movie, which I watched mm. okay. in in anticipation of this episode, because for a while it seemed like you and I wouldn't be able uh, to record. Emily uh, is not with us this week. She's been uh, swanning around London, but around mm-hmm. that London that they have now. And you have family staying, so we weren't sure if you'd be able to record. So I was fully prepared to sit and do an episode on my own where I talked about Gotti for 30 minutes. And I have two pages of notes about Gotti because it's a sort of movie that you really need to kind of pause every so often to just collect yourself and just jot things down about the, the baffling choices that are made in Gotti by Kevin Conley, who is someone in Entourage, but I don't know who, because it doesn't matter. All I know of him is that he's the auteur behind Gotti, one of the most bafflingly constructed movies ever made. It's obviously got a lot of press this year for being kind of inexplicably poor. Mm -hmm. Um, And also it's made funnier by the fact that it was a passion project, which is always funnier when it's a passion project and it turns Mm. out to be dreadful. Yes, that sense that someone has really poured all of their heart and soul into this thing and you realise, oh, you really just didn't have the talent to pull this off. Uh, especially, It's especially funny to be a movie about John Gotti who, I mean, I can't, I, I would not claim to be an expert on the story of John Gotti. I've only watched the movie. But the impression of the movie is that he was just a dick who was like of no value to anyone <laughs> and like you can't think of why anyone would want to make a movie about him and the movie the, the best way i can describe the movie is it's like goodfellas remade by aliens for other aliens to try and explain <laughs> what, what a gangster is and it's really it's really quite quite poor 
in everything just the basic grammar of it the way scenes are edited its use of music uh which i i described to you and to anyone who listened because like i've just been screaming about gotti at strangers for the last two days is it's it's the most obnoxious soundtrack choices since suicide squad and mm. it's not like on the nose in the way that those were it's just like these are a lot of famous songs that have nothing to do with the scene in progress like there's one sequence where Jotty, Jotty, uh, <laughs> where Gotti gets let out of prison, and he goes and kills the guy who's responsible for putting him in prison, and it's all mm-hmm. set to the theme from Shaft, <laughs> and I don't know why, <laughs> and it's it really does feel like stolen valor. It's mm. like you do not get to use the theme from Shaft to soundtrack a Logie John Travolta walking around and shooting a guy in a shower which isn't even terribly well squibbed because like the blood splatter goes off in two separate directions even though you're shooting him from the same place Mm. it's a it's it's really it's i i would recommend it to everyone i think it's really funny to watch uh but also i'd recommend it to all budding filmmakers because i think it really teaches you why why people don't do certain things in movies (laughs) here's a question so i was hanging out the other day with my boys and mm-hmm. uh, as we do on a Saturday night, being bloody lads, and we were just kind of catching mm-hmm. up because, like, we were, it, there was pure banter, hundred percent single origin, mm-hmm. line court, uh, responsibly sourced banter. <laughs> we were just hanging out because we were kind of we had some uni friends up who we hadn't seen in a while, and TV was just on in the background, and the the two thousand movie Swordfish was on. And oh, wow. like, I mean, I, I just say anyway, like that is definitely worth revisiting. Yeah. Shit the bed. I thought the 2000s had no discernible aesthetic and um, <laughs> kind of visual track. But that that film is pretty repellent in every single way. And yeah, mm. and, but anyway, but my friend Andy, uh, who is a, a long time listener to the show, posed the, the, the question, which is something that I've asked about several actors in the past, but about John Travolta in the, is he good or is he rubbish? Because mm. I'm not sure. Because in my head, I think, oh, John Travolta's good. He's just done a lot of bad films. But then I just think, actually, is John Travolta just rubbish? Discuss. Mm. I I got, when I was watching Gotti, and one of the things I noticed about it is that he has one facial expression throughout the entire movie, which I think can be described as dad annoyed <laughs> that the flight has been delayed. <laughs> like he just seems, he seems really put out by the whole thing. And like, he's about to go and ask to see someone's manager, mm-hmm. but he is very committed to that. He is very earnest in committing to that specific choice of how he wants to play the character. And it, it definitely felt to me like he is someone who will commit entirely to the material that he is given, but he clearly has no ability to to discern what good material is. Mm -hmm. And so that's why as I was going to say as recently as get shorty, but I mean, that's not, that's not recent now. Um, (laughs) That's uh, I believe uh, that film came out in 1995. Ed. Hmm. That's true. And also has now been remade as a TV series with Chris O'Dowd. (laughs) Yeah. That's a left field choice. (laughs) Yes. They, they will occasionally show the trailer for that before movies at amc over here and every time i'm like i really can't believe that this exists and that apparently it's got two seasons Mm. but yeah uh like i can't what was the last really what was the last really good performance that we got from travolta that that's the question i'm asking ed (laughs) that's all i can think of is get shorty and i'm just wondering if just after that he just 
I, I, he's, he does a good perf- vocal performance in Bolt, the Disney movie from 10 years ago. Jesus Christ, um, is that the bar? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just wonder if he's he has no, for whatever reason, if it's Scientology related or whatever, like he just has no ability to pick good stuff anymore. I mean, mm. maybe that movie he's making with Fred Durst will be good. But so, sorry, the the what now? <laughs> he's uh, he's starring in a movie directed and written by Fred Durst of Limp Biscuit fame, uh, the... which I believe he plays a stalker. Wow! If you look at if you look at search for pictures of him online in like the paparazzi pictures that have been released of him in that movie, it's it, it's something. It really is quite something. Wow! And I wonder if Fred Durst's direction will be very much in the lines of, okay, John, now breathe in and breathe out. Now hold your hands up. Back up, back up. Now what are you going to do now? Because that's And whilst being dressed, whilst he is a 45-year-old man, he is dressed as a teenager in short trousers and a backwards baseball cap. Yes. I'm not sure if John Travolta is good or rubbish. And I kind of, as soon mm. as that was said to me, I was like, no, 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 he's good. He's been in some good films. That is true. He has been in some good films, yes. but is he good in them? Is he good in Pulp Fiction? Is he good in Grease? Is he good in Saturday Night Fever? I'm not so sure he is. He's he's charismatic in all of those. He is. That is correct. The best parts of those movies is rarely John Travolta. Mm. So yeah. Get Shorty was the exception. He's very magnetic in Get Shorty. I actually mm. read the book of Get Shorty um, like last year. That's a really that's a, a a very good book and be a very good adaptation. Mm, yeah it, it's really fantastic they really get across the leanness of elmore leonard's writing which mm-hmm. you also see in like um out of sight and jackie brown he's very no nonsense but also flavorful i guess mm-hmm. you know like he writes with a great verve so even though he is kind of sparse the sentences are all very memorable and i think that's a that makes for a great combination when adapting something like that for the screen Mm. Is um, if you get the edition of Get Shorty that I've got, it's got you know that that kind of phase that they went through of putting like DVD extra features in in books mm-hmm. over the end, yeah. like essays and stuff. Yeah. But there was there's actually they have Elmore Leonard's lessons for writing, I think it's called something like that. It's like oh. ten points of which you should like always follow for writing. Mm. And you know, as you can imagine from reading Elmore Leonard's writing, it's very much about being punchy and economical, kind of more out of less. And uh, mm. yeah, he's uh, some very good advice in there for budding writers. He also says lesson 10 of these things is John Travolta is rubbish. So <laughs> I think that's the, fi- the, the final word on the argument. But mm. yeah, in, you know, next week on Is He Good or Is He Rubbish? Forrest Whitaker. Because <laughs> um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure with him either. Although I think there's, there's more going on with Forrest Whitaker than there is with John Travolta. Yeah, I always think about his he, performance. He's just erratic. Yes, I always think of his performance in The Shield, where, um, mm-hmm. you know, he is very compelling, but he is also clearly acting in a very different show to everyone else. <laughs> so he's very, he's very, no, he's very, um, he's very memorable, but also doesn't leave any bit of scenery unnibbled. Mm. Yeah, but I mean, at least he's got like Bird or something like that, where he's mm. like genuinely incredible in it, but then... Gonna pops up in like Rogue One, <laughs> completely pulls you out of a film that's about outlandish characters and weird alien races and strange things that are happening mm. in a kind of a broad sci-fi context. And you're like, "What? This is a bit much, actually." Yes, yeah, he is. 
he is i think we've talked about this before like one of the joys of or of star wars is just hearing people do impressions of the characters because some of them really do linger in the mind in a in a major way and i do i love how every podcaster since rogue one has come out has developed their uh saw guerrera voice <laughs> like everyone seems to really enjoy going poor gallet will know the truth <laughs> Yeah, it's a very similar voice that he does in Black Panther. Mm, yeah, it's his Disney voice. He'll he, yeah, then maybe that's what Disney money gets you. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it'd be quite fun being in the Disney rep company and just kind of like being shuffled around, like Alan Tudyk being in like seven of their movies at this point, like the residuals from the two Wreck It Ralph movies, Rogue One, a couple of other animated movies he's done. It feels like he's probably he's probably doing pretty well for himself. After after the Firefly royalties start to dry up, <laughs> yeah, he's in Zootopia and uh, Moana. He's the chicken, but I'm sure mm. that the royalties for that can't be great. Mm. Yeah, not getting called to record too many chicken sounds for like the rides. <laughs> no, no, that's where the money is in the rides. Mm. So, uh, so this is going to be just kind of like a short, quick episode this week because. We, we had, I, I had planned to just talk about Gotti for ages, and uh, so we haven't really thought of a, a, a topic for this one, so we're just going to talk about the news, I guess, for this week, mm. and particular a couple of news stories we have been following that have reached kind of a climax this week, and, and as is often the case, you know, a couple of, couple of celebrity deaths uh, that happened in the last couple of days that uh, I think certainly hit you and I uh, reasonably, reasonably hard. But we'll start with the fact that this is the week that filmstruck is shuttering filmstruck of course is the streaming app from tcm and warner uh, archives with the criterion collection which it was announced last month was ceasing operations after being in uh, being in business for about two years and last week we meant to talk about this but we just ran out of time so it seems the the apropos moment to talk about it this week is that the criterion Collection is launching its own streaming service, which is going to kind of continue on the spirit of Filmstruck in terms of curation, having collections that focus on particular genres or countries or filmmakers in the same way that that did, but with the reduced library and that it would just be Criterion and Eclipse stuff as opposed to before where they were pulling from sort of six or seven boutique libraries all at once. And this will exist as its own standalone service, which will launch in the spring and also be included as part of a broader collection of streaming services that Warner Brothers want to launch at the end of 2019. And the news, this news was initially greeted quite positively by a lot of the people who are kind of dismayed at Filmstruck closing down. But the more limited scope of it and the fact that its existence separately from this package of streaming services necessitates that there is going to be a, a package of streaming services which suggests that warner brothers are just going all in on the idea that we're just going to do cable again but now it's streaming maybe suggests that this isn't exactly the greatest outcome of film shuttering mm. is it the best possible outcome given that it became clear that it, it just couldn't be straight up saved is this a good silver medal kind of position or is it kind of too compromised in terms of it continuing on the stuff about filmstruck that was great which was the sense that it was a film service that was run by people who loved it i mean it doesn't help the people who have lost their jobs because i mm. don't know or, or I, I guess i don't know how many people would have lost their jobs because a lot of the people who worked for on filmstruck also worked for tcm and i think a lot of them kind of did roles at both 
So hopefully not that many people have lost lost their jobs over it. But keeping that thing of it going, the sense that this is a, a movie site run by people who really care about the movies being shown and who are devoted to helping people find movies that they might not see anymore by having those collections and spotlights and things like that. That I think is very, very good. But the downside for me is like the fact that it seems to point to the current state of the streaming landscape, which is that you can only really exist in two forms. You either are a huge umbrella like Netflix and Amazon and Hulu, which don't really have your own identity. I mean, Hulu kind of does in that it's, you know, oh, here's recent movies. uh, Sorry, here's recent TV shows that have aired this week. Here's, you know, backlogs of old TV shows and whatever movies happen to be showing on HBO as opposed to Netflix, which is just content slurry, just constantly being pushed out at you, some of which is great, but uh, it's kind of hard to kind of swim through. Or hyper-specific stuff like Shudder, which is like, if we can get like a couple hundred thousand horror fans to sign up for this, then we're solvent because we're not aiming to reach a big audience. Like, the fact that those seem to be the two tiers that exist and you can't have something like, like Filmstruck, which tried to kind of hit a middle ground... You know, I think it just kind of speaks to the stratification of all media, you know, when we talk about the fact that Hollywood studios now focus mainly on movies that cost 200 million or 200,000. And like (laughs) the middle ground between the two has disappeared. Like this, this seems to be just reaffirming that that is the way all media is kind of going and how that is kind of detrimental, I think, to culture more generally. Mm. It's we 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 spoke at the start of the year about kind of like aims for the year of mm. you know what we wanted to get out of our film watching, and I said that I would attempt to do the fifty two films by women. It's not a challenge, mm. is it? It's not my fucking ice bucket. But yeah, <laughs> I wanted to you know try and broaden my viewing. Um, and that's been mostly a success. I've got a few films to go, but it looks like I'm on track to 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 finish that. And I have discovered some stuff that I'm you know super pleased, and I never would have discovered otherwise had I not even you know even thought to do it. I probably would have watched some of those films, but you know by no means all mm. of them. But next year, I really want to try and watch more older films, mm. and there just isn't the. In, you know, today's streaming age, there just isn't an accessible service to do that. I've noticed that, no. like, Amazon Prime will dump just a ton of old movies on their streaming service, but it'll be stuff like they'll drop, you know, like the Philadelphia story in amongst, like, 80 straight-to-video kind of horror movies <laughs> you've never heard of without any kind of fanfare, and it's like there's there's no curation so whilst mm. I never personally got to experience Filmstruck because it never actually reached the streaming point over here and I'm not anyone who has ever at any point in their life obsessively collected Criterions, I think this would be a good service for me to tr- perhaps try and uncover some of the films or blind spots that I have, which, I mean, it's mm. this fucking gaping black hole at this point in my, <laughs> my blind spots in cinema. But, like, I, I really would love a streaming service that catered for that because mm. it's really lacking there's just so little on netflix or amazon prime that's easy to navigate and like i say the accessibility of it is what most people want the convenience 
And, uh, you know, there can't just be a desire for new content. There has to be a desire for, like we've said before, like preservation and older films being kept behind. And if mm. this is what we have to go with, then, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on board. I will there. I'm put me in, put me in QA. It is launching in UK and Europe. I believe it's like months after the US release, mm. but um, there's no like firm dates or anything or what it will cost. But I mean, the, is the Criterion label in America the exact same as it is here? Pretty much. I think the Criterion library in the UK so far is smaller just because it's been around for less time. But in mm-hmm. terms of when it comes to streaming, I would imagine that there's less of a problem with that mm. in terms of like access to a wider range of movies than necessarily are available on disc. Which is also true when it came to Filmstruck. They had a lot of movies that Criterion had licensed but have never put out. Or, or not never have put out, but you know, just have yet to put out on a physical disc yet. So there, mm-hmm. So there is a lot of room there for a lot of interesting things to kind of slip through. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm here for it. As soon as it lands, sign me up. Mm. Yeah, to to repeat a phrase we used last week, it's better than nothing. <laughs> it's better than, it literally is better than nothing. One of the other big stories this week was, and also, you know, to kind of call back to last week where we just spent ages talking about trailers, the trailer for the Lion King remake, the CGI animated remake of the Lion King, not live action, as everyone keeps calling it, because there is nothing in it that's live action, <laughs> dropped this week. And I think it, it generated some starkly defined reactions on the one hand where these people being like oh my god this is going to make all of the money which is probably true and being very excited about it and there was me posting a screenshot from first reformed saying will god ever forgive us (laughs) (laughs) and the words that feeling when you see a screenshot of the new lion king which is hyperbole on my part i actually don't care that much about it but i think that I i was trying to tap into i think the feeling a lot of people have which is they look at it and they just think I do not understand why this exists and it why people would be excited for what looks like a fairly straightforward just redo of the original movie but with less expressive colors like a a fidelity to realism that takes all of the expressiveness out of the beautiful 2D animation that made the original such so beloved. Charles Bromesco, who's a freelance film writer, who basically described it as playing into the the gamer kind of love of things being realistic, regardless mm-hmm. of whether or not that is a valid artistic choice. And that's kind of how I feel about it. Like people are going to be saying, "Man, the graphics on that new Lion King movie are going to be so <laughs> sweet." And she's like, "That that isn't that doesn't really feel like a particularly fruitful way to approach movies." Mm, yeah it's i i don't really know where the desire for realism comes from and mm. i don't really know where the desire for realism comes from in a film about talking animals mm. um it, it doesn't seem to make a great deal of sense to me and the thing is is that you can be photorealistic yes but the range of it's like when when a photorealistic animal talks it doesn't look right mm. and doesn't carry character in the way that, for instance, if you think about like how Jeremy Irons, Jeremy Irons' voice is Scar and how Scar is animated. Yes. And how that is a function of the character rather than a photorealistic lion. 
it just feels like a pointless upgrade but no one's asked for an upgrade. And in this instance, an upgrade isn't necessarily better. Yeah. So uh, whilst like I enjoyed the Jungle Book live action version, I felt mm. like there was a lot there. And I felt like that film suffered when it tried to ape the original, like when it had the songs in it. The songs didn't make any sense in yeah. uh, this version of the Jungle Book. And I super enjoyed it. But that was not a shot for shot remake of the Jungle Book. There were callbacks, of course there were. There was lots of kind of little nods to the original and and it's you know it's the exact same story but the lion king from the trailer looks like like a kind of like a dazzle reel of how you can <laughs> do a cgi version of something that's animated mm. and do not get me wrong it is very impressive yeah um, it looks it, very it looks very impressive but whether or not it's going to carry the same sense of fun and uh, adventure uh, by being you know, photorealistically CGI'd. I don't know. I don't know if I need it. Like at this point, kind of like Dis- I mean, Disney are the smartest company in the world, right? Mm. They they make something and then they remake it, <laughs> and then they keep remaking it, and we everyone seems to keep coming back for more because they've changed the mode of how they're doing it, mm. or they take a story that's in the public domain. <laughs> Then they remake that and then take out very kind of stringent legal um, safeguards to show that no one can remake their version of something that is in the public domain, mm. which is kind of nuts. So yeah. at this point, i got to say, dude, you know, they could sell anything to anyone right mm. now. Um, and this will make a ton of money. And the cast is great. Like, let's not forget, yeah. this is going to be like... This is going to be a, one of the biggest ever movies with a predominantly like black cast, mm. and you know that is definitely cause for celebration. But it wish it was something more interesting. Yeah, because like I don't want to come across as being like I'm anti all remakes or sequels. Like I really think you know people should be allowed to remake and sequelize anything they want if they have a good idea for it like you know people were mm-hmm. up in arms on twitter this week about saying like oh what if you know people are talking about remaking back to the future and it's like fine go for it like it, there's a very high chance you'll fail <laughs> but you know mm. if you want to try and remake back to the future then more power to you and for me and again we are basing this on you know a trailer which only shows a few scenes of the movie so maybe the rest of the movie veers somewhat more differently from the source material and isn't as close as this opening kind of gambit looks. But it does seem as if they are just using the iconography of the original movie to just say, okay, we're going to do this again, but in a slightly technologically in a different way. And that feels Mm. so uninspiring. And you compare that to the live action Dumbo which is coming out also next year and I you know I described it to you saying like I am not looking forward to Dumbo but I am not looking forward to Dumbo less than I'm not looking forward to the Lion King remake because at least the Timber and Dumbo is very clearly doing very different things to the original movie like it has a very different focus it's all about human characters or, or largely about human characters whereas the original the, the, the human characters exist you know, for the most part as shadows or as kind of not really characters at all 
and so that's a very different figure you know it has this villain played by michael keaton who's kind of like a rampant capitalist who wants to exploit the circus which is a very different thing that's a new element it looks like a tim burton movie i still think it doesn't look good because and i don't <laughs> have high hopes for it because tim burton hasn't made a movie i've liked in what when did big fish come out 15 years ago mm-hmm. so he hasn't made a movie that i've particularly connected with in any way but it you know you look at it and say okay that looks like tim burton's dumbo fine and the lion king is like oh this looks like adobe photoshop's lying it doesn't look like anything that has been it doesn't feel as if it, it it's something that has necessarily been made by artists so much as technicians which is not mm. to denigrate the work of the technicians just the sense that i can see based on the footage that's been released i can see the artistic case for why dumbo exists but i i've yet to see one necessarily for why lion king exists mm. Yeah, that's the question, isn't it? Just why, why, why is it happening? Mm. In this particular way. Yeah, like you say, I'm, I'm not against remakes. If you have got a better idea than the idea that they had in the first place, then you know I'm all for it. I did see the Back to the Future thing in the news this week, and it was a poll, wasn't it? I think audiences said that's the the, the film franchise they'd like to most see remade, and we don't know how that question was put to people or who it was put to but that's essentially one of these um kind of shitty surveys they put out i would personally watch a film based on john mulaney's bit about the writers (laughs) pitching back to the future as a concept to movie heads about a teenage boy whose only friend (laughs) is a disgraced (laughs) nuclear physicist who hangs out with him parking lots at nighttime, um, who goes back (laughs) in time, tries to fuck his mum and saves her from being raped (laughs) by the family friend Biff, (laughs) which is, (laughs) I mean, why would you break it down like that? I mean, there's also that, I don't know if you, did you, did you finish the second season of glow? Uh, Yes. Yeah, there's the the, whole, the little storyline where Mark Maron's trying to fish his script around, uh, and it's like, oh, it's a time travel. There's Oedipal stuff in it, and then realizes he's written Back to the Future before, mm-hmm. as Back to the Future is just coming out. Um, yeah. But I mean, yeah, like, no, it doesn't need to be remade. It would be very tough to do it, but fuck it, go for it. Like, you know, nothing's perfect. Mm, it really yeah. isn't. You know, it seems perfect until something better comes along. So, you know, by uh, I mean, I wish people would come up with another idea first, but you know, it's always happened. People have remade stuff and remixed things and, and chuck stuff around. And that's how you progress, I guess. But this, this is a remake that doesn't feel like it's progress. Mm, it just feels like yeah. it's the same, you know, it just feels like, like someone in a, uh, in a kind of graphic, um, kind of illustrative design class could be like, create this scene in three different ways and the first Lion King was the first and this is you know using CGI animation the next one will be like stop motion or whatever it feels like an experiment to see how you can show the same thing in a different style rather than actually trying to tell a good story using the tools at your disposal Mm, yeah absolutely Uh, so our next story and this is going to be the first of two, two as I mentioned earlier two uh, two recent deaths, the first of which happened a couple of days ago, and that was the news that Nicholas Rogue had died. Nicholas Rogue, for people who are unfamiliar with his work, was a cine- initially a, n- a cinematographer working in Britain in the uh, in the sixties. Worked on things like, and also some work in America, most 
notably, I think probably he shot Roger Corman's adaptation of The Mask of the Red Death, which is a brilliant looking movie. If anyone uh, has never seen it, it's an absolutely gorgeous Poe adaptation. Lots of really vivid colours and just a, a general atmosphere of dread that uh, he contributed to greatly. And then he moved into into film directing in the 70s, directing a string of classic British movies, starting with Performance, then Walkabout, Don't Look Now, The Man Who Fell to Earth, and uh, I think Insignificance was probably the last of like the major ones that he made. And then he worked kind of consistently throughout the 80s, directed The Witches in the 90s, which certainly was the first of his movies so, that I saw. So- so fucking weird that he did that. Yeah, but when you yeah. watch it, it's like, okay, I see why you did this, because you wanted to make something that would traumatise people. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, and then he kind of like... That was kind of like the last kind of major commercial thing he did, and then he, he'd made lots of avant-garde stuff throughout the, the 90s and the 2000s, and he was just a... A really, but I mean that run, that seventies run of his is un, is incredible, and like it's up there with like Hal Ashby is the greatest kind of like run of work from a single filmmaker in a in a very short period of time. But his greater influence on the way in which people consider cinema is kind of incalculable because he was someone who really pushed against the boundaries of how to use time in cinema and editing you know like the the non-linear editing that you see in don't look now is much discussed you also see a lot of that in the man uh, who fell to earth and he was just someone who i think really pushed against the notion that cinema was a conventional medium pushed uh, limited by the constraints of time and like also mm-hmm. lots of other a lot of other filmmakers had done that certainly people working in the avant-garde space had done that sort of thing for years and years and years in terms of non-linear editing but he was someone who married it to a commercial mainstream sensibility in a way that really connected with a lot of audiences and, and i think that was really hammered home by a lot of the tributes that came through from other filmmakers who have been inspired by his work mm, yeah he's he's someone who very rarely is lumped together with that kind of new Hollywood lot because he was kind of operating around there. But his his films all do feel like they're tied into that era. Like Don't Look Now definitely does. But it feels detached because of like where it was shot and how it was shot. And But like the, the, the personnel and stuff kind of all cross over. But in terms of someone who makes films that are just incredibly striking and bold and, and daring then, yeah, I mean, you don't have to look too much further than performance mm. for something. A film that I really have never fully understood. Um, yeah. But that's, you know, quite quite a film. And then Don't Look Now, which is, you know, it's right up there with something that kind of seems to defy most easy categorization, kind of a, a film about grief and, you know, loss, but also kind of like a super super creepy kind of horror film but then also not at all and i'm not saying that in you know from either viewpoint of a horror fan trying to kind of uh, make the case for high art and for high art looking down on horror but that really does kind of tread that line of being truly horrific but also being kind of like a masterpiece of 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 character and texture and tone he's not the most prolific of filmmakers in terms of like his notable stuff he you know obviously did work quite a bit later but yeah like you say that run in the middle it's quite something the man who fell to earth is such a distinct and fitting documentary about david bowie <laughs> that is you know that is something that is um yeah he that he can get a good performance out of rock stars 
uh, Mick Jagger and David Bowie. Not together though. He didn't direct the uh, Dancing in the Street video for shame. No. But yeah, it, like yeah, his films, The Witches as well is another film that I watched when I was younger. And yeah, there's some stuff. <laughs> there's some stuff in there that is under the skin, mm. uh, should we say? But yeah, he's he's like when when someone who is has directed several masterpieces leaves us, that's quite a big deal. Mm. Even if they'd kind of maybe slowed down a bit towards the end of their the life but yeah that's he's kind of one of the titans of of i was gonna say genres but he just kind of really doesn't do films in genres do you know what i mean he just makes yeah. amazing films but yeah i mean for anyone who doesn't really know um then don't look now man who fell to earth and performance are the three that i would go to i've never actually seen walkabout i have to admit but those three are like i mean that is a pretty much flawless trilogy of films Mm, yeah, I I love all those movies. I think Walkabout is is really great and is definitely worth seeing, uh, especially for I think is it I think it's used as a joke in Men Behaving Badly. I think, which is one of those like really weird examples of low and high culture really crossing over <laughs> because there's a scene where Jenny Agatos, the the star of the movie, um, there's a scene in which she is uh, naked and uh, she goes for a swim. And I believe in men behaving badly, like Neil Morrissey does, like it specifically says, like or Martin Clunes, one of the two says, like she goes in a girl, but she comes out a woman, and it's just like that for me always really struck me as so weird because I remember watching that episode of Men Behaving Badly when I was a kid. I don't know why I watched it because it was like I was like ten, and that show is not for a ten year old. But um, mm-hmm. I remember watching that and then that name kind of like sticking with me and then watching Walkabout years later and being like, oh, yeah, that's what they were talking about. And then just being baffled by <laughs> by that particular reference. Uh, also, in terms of weird connections, uh, I only discovered this week that the big audio dynamite song E equals MC squared is all about Nicholas Rogue and his movies. And if you look at all the lyrics to that song, every verse is about a different one of his movies. Uh, which is mm. very cool, very cool, and an, an, again, unexpected example of him crossing over into pop culture. Mm. Let, we, we have just bridged the gap between Big Audio Dynamite, Men Behaving Badly, and Nicholas <laughs> Rogue. We've done it. We made it. We made that happen. Yeah, that's that's very much our remit. And our final news story this week, again, sad news of a death which happened just yesterday, is, was the news that Ricky Jay had passed away. Ricky Jay was a magician and actor and generally all-around fascinating human being, I think it's fair to say. He uh, was, I think I I probably know him best for playing the character of Eddie in Deadwood, where he Mm -hmm. was a a really funny, wry figure. He also starred in a bunch of David Mamet movies because he and David Mamet were pretty good friends due to their shared interest in games of chance and comms and things like that. But his broader career was incredibly interesting. He was, in addition to being probably the greatest sleight-of-hand artist of his generation, and if you go on YouTube and look at videos that he has done over the years and TV specials he did, you get to see him do really quite incredible acts of uh, manipulation and using cards to do funny tricks. There's a great video of him being interviewed on the Conan O'Brien show in the early 2000s where he starts throwing cards at Conan and Jackie Chan, which is uh, <laughs> just a, a wonder, one of those wonderful moments that the weird antiquated format of the talk show allows to happen. Um, but then he throws it into uh, a watermelon with enough speed to penetrate the skin, which is 
kind of a, a weird a weird self-defense mechanism but one that he mastered and in addition to that he was a collector of ancient of old books about magic he was a documenter of and writer about kind of the history of cons and flimflamery and about mountebanks and this entire subculture of american life which had, dis- had died away many many years ago and was really pretty much in its death rattle when he was a young man and so he you know wrote several books about this kind of collecting together all of these really interesting and cool stories of these people who otherwise have kind of been forgotten about and I think it speaks to, you know, you hear all of these stories about Ricky Jay from his collaborators over the last couple of days. I think he, he came across as a man who was just terribly interested in things and who wanted to know as much about the things that he cared about as he could know. And his interest in these kind of antiquated ideas and areas of culture really, you know, his death was, was sad anyway, but it kind of like heightens it. You know, the idea of a guy who was so into things that had had died away himself passing away and not really there being anyone who could replace him kind of really heightens the sense of of sadness at him passing away Mm. he's someone who is like incredibly unique and um like you say his career speaks for itself in the kind of like, I can't believe someone does all that stuff, uh, stakes. But he's mm-hmm. someone whose face you would recognise, especially if you came up watching films in the 90s that feature a lot of character actors. So, you know, films like, I think my first exposure to Ricky Jay would have been something like Boogie Nights and then yes. subsequently Magnolia, the film mm-hmm. that he, he does the opening narration for uh, for Magnolia and he also kind of appears later as... Um, a TV executive. Um, so he's got one of those faces where, like, you might have only seen him in one thing, but it feels like you've seen him in everything. Yeah. He also uh, wrote some episodes of Deadwood. Um, mm. And, you know, given his kind of um, interest in that kind of, like, 19th century ephemera, it seems wholly appropriate that he would write episodes of Deadwood. Yes. But, yeah, he is... Uh, I'm a big... I'm kind of a huge fan of David Mamet, and I've seen him in kind of a lot of his stuff... Um, and there's a really good movie called The Spanish Prisoner, which I would recommend mm. if you are into seeing something that is quintessentially David Mamet, but also kind of tied in quite nicely with Ricky Jay, because it's about kind of the most elaborate con. The con itself is called The Spanish Prisoner, which I believe um, is a real life uh, con. Um, it stars Campbell Scott and a few other people who I can't remember because I saw the film a long time ago. But it's, oh, Steve Martin's in it playing it straight. And he's very yes. good. Ricky Jay is uh, like a small part of that movie, but kind of adds so much to it. Um, he was always someone who could just do that in a scene because um, he had like pre- real presence. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he's kind of someone that you just always figure that he would be around um, mm. just doing his thing. He also, um, if I remember correctly, just when I said he narrated uh, Magnolia, I, doesn't he narrate all of or some of the Brothers Bloom. He does. Which itself is about elaborate cons. Yeah. Yeah, he, he does all of the voiceover for it and the narration and does a very, very good job. He has a very... He had a very calming but dryly funny way of speaking and he had, like, a real wonderful turn of phrase. You see that if you... Again, if you go on YouTube and watch videos of him performing, like, he has this real... he's He can really command an audience without being necessarily 
over the top with it. Like he mm-hmm. just has a way of just kind of like throwing out a funny little witticism and that makes you laugh, but also keeps you really invested in finding out what he is going to do and, and assuring you that what you're going to see is going to be really, really uh, amazing and, and really kind of awe you in some way. And I think that that quality you really hear in The Brothers Bloom, where he provides, I think, a lot of the connective tissue to make that movie make even the slightest bit of sense. Because a lot of the rest of the story kind of feels like a collection of sequences, but he does a really good job of giving it more of a, a core than it necessarily has for anything else. Mm, yeah. And yeah, he's got a ton of stuff that, you know, you can find him in. And yeah, he's always great. And like, as far as I know, he's, was, is he the world record holder for like the fastest card thrown or certainly was at something which mm-hmm. goes a long way to kind of uh, meaning that he is generally considered a danger to watermelons <laughs> and Jackie Chan. Yeah. But yeah, oh, that's it. I've just looked it up. He wrote a book called Carter's Weapons. Yes. Yeah, that was his first book, I think. Yeah, which I don't know whether there's much more to it than just throw it really hard. <laughs> I don't know how long that book is. But yeah, I mean, the guy could turn playing cards into weapons. That's That's got to be something. Mm. Uh, Heist is the other film I'm thinking of, the David Mamet film. Mm. Gene Hatman in and uh, Danny Sam DeVito. Rockwell, Danny DeVito, Delroy Lindo. One of those people who was in every movie in the 90s. Yeah. But yeah, that's another good movie, again, about kind of uh, elaborate crossing and double crossing. So he was kind of attracted to a certain type of material. Mm. And yeah, always in that regard, lent it an air of, of kind of authenticity. Yeah. And he also had a kind of a fairly successful career as a consultant on movies, which I, I don't know if it started with Mamet's work, but certainly Mamet was someone who consulted him a lot when he wanted to kind of write things that were about cons because Jay had a really encyclopedic knowledge of all of these old kind old timey scams and things like that so if ever so he would phone up uh, David uh, David Manning would would phone him up and just say hey you know I'm writing this script I kind of want to do a story and this is all in the there's a New Yorker profile of of Ricky Jay from 2000 uh, from 1993 which I would highly recommend any anyone read there's loads of stories like this where he would just phone him up and say hey I'm I want to do kind of a story about there's like a it's it's the 1850s and there's kind of a party going on and people are in the woods and then someone just disappears. Do you know, is there anything like that? And Ricky Jay would be like, well, that's, you know, that's kind of a, a really tricky one. I can't think of anything. I mean, there's just this pamphlet from 1760, which kind of talks about this sort of thing. And that was the kind of guy he had. He just had this repository of knowledge of things that people have done to kind of trick and amaze other people. And that's why he worked on like loads and loads of movies including most recently he was a consultant on mission impossible rogue nation where Mm -hmm. he and this was something that christopher mcquarrie talked about on twitter today in them kind of talking about plans for the opera sequence which is kind of the centerpiece of that movie and, and one of the the great action sequences within the mission impossible franchise he was just that they would just have conversations about what they wanted to do and he said that an offhand comment from ricky jay completely reshaped what christopher mcquarrie decided to do with that sequence and that's that seems to be the sort of guy that that he was he was just a repository of all this really arcane but interesting knowledge and people just went to him for it because he offered something that you couldn't really find from anyone else no one else had that depth and breadth of knowledge about these sort of things and could offer them you know at a moment's notice for someone making a 150 billion dollar blockbuster or mm. someone making a small kind of indie movie about brothers who are con men. Mm. 
Yeah, people always kind of give you that bullshit question of like, who would you invite to your perfect dinner party? But mm. well, imagine having someone like Ricky Jay over. You would never tire for conversation, and yeah. he'd probably whap out some amazing card tricks and then throw one at the the guest who would stay outstayed their welcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He just he he just seems to me to have been an utterly fascinating and distinctive human being, and mm-hmm. uh, it's really uh, yeah, it's just sad that he's he's no longer going to be around but at the same time you know it's nice knowing now because people have been sharing all these clips of it on youtube it's like oh wow you know if i'm ever kind of looking for something to do i can just type ricky j into youtube and let autoplay kind of go and it probably won't radicalize me in this instance mm. <laughs> as opposed to most of the other things you can search on youtube i mean maybe it eventually gets to um <laughs> throwing nazi cards but uh, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully not but you know you can just watch that and just kind of see all of this work he did over the years and his books are out there as well you know the the books he wrote over the years uh and it's no substitute for more great stories about ricky jay but you know it's something absolutely we end this episode as we end all our episodes with shot reverse shot recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well matt what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week spurred on by the lion king um Mm. i'm going to recommend a very short piece of writing from the wonderful McSweeney's, from uh, their short imagined monologues season, uh, series with the brilliantly titled An Antelope from the Lion King Wonders Why He Was Invited to the Celebration of Simba's Birth by a writer called Fabian Lapham. It will take you a minute to read. Ed will put a link in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really fucking funny. Um, <laughs> and it uh, perhaps echoes my thoughts at the point of this of the whole Lion King reimagining. Although it's the lack of imagination that we've got the problem with. So yeah, mm. we'll post that. That's it's just a really funny uh, little thing that's silly. And also hiding the fact that I haven't watched a film in three weeks of playing Red <laughs> Dead Redemption too fairly solidly. So yes, uh, enjoy that. And uh, yeah, that's all I've got for you this week. Yeah, I, I will recommend again. I, I just mentioned that the New Yorker profile of ricky j which i'll put a link to in the comments uh, a link to in the show notes uh, is really really fascinating i will also recommend a movie that i watched this week uh it, it kind of as the palate cleanser to gotti which is a terrible movie and also a terrible movie about new york uh, i'm going to recommend can you ever forgive me which is a great movie and a great movie about new york it stars melissa mccarthy as lee israel who was a biographer of prominent women and who in the late 80s early 90s kind of hit hard times due in part to uh, problems with alcoholism and in the early 90s engaged in a kind of elaborate forgery enterprise in which she wrote letters she forged letters from prominent people and sold them to kind of like stay alive basically so she would write things by like gertrude stein and things like that and say and sell them to collectors and the movie is largely about how israel carried that about but it's also about her relationship with a a kind of fellow dissolute new yorker played in the movie by richard d grant in a term that should net him a supporting oscar a a sporting actor oscar because he is absolutely incredible in the movie and he and and as is Melissa McCarthy, I think it's one of her best performances. And I think the two of them together have tremendous chemistry. And it's just a wonderful... For, for me, there are certain scenes in it which, to me, sum up what my idealised version of New York is, which is people being witty and angry at each other, getting drunk in the middle of the day in a terrible bar, 
while it's snowing outside and they're miserable and that to me is like my romantic ideal of new york and everything around the movie is kind of gravy from that point onwards but i do really think that it is a a really fantastic movie and one of the best of the year Mm. that will be up there in the in awards season won't it i would hope so it hasn't had a huge amount of traction so far but i would at the very least i think that richard e grant should get some sort of notice because he's he's generally a very very great presence in movies but i think he is this, this makes particularly great use of his talents if you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places, and uh, you know, leave us a review, uh, rate us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. We are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different, but until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. been like looking up some information about ricky j mm. and his wikipedia entry ends with uh, a music section mm. which says ricky j contributed to several projects in the music world most notably the 2007 sony release ricky j plays poker which was a box set containing a cd of poker related songs by bob dylan robert johnson towns van sant patsy klein lawn green howard de silva ovi wright and several others Plus a DVD featuring Ricky Jay discussing, discussing and performing notable feats of card table deception, and a box of Ricky Jay playing cards. Wow! What a weird, what a weird thing to exist. That little entry on Ricky Jay that I just read reminded me of you know when I just said what a strange thing to exist. It just yeah. brought into my head. Do you remember this? I'm just going to read it to you. It's the album that came out to accompany the film Pirates of the Caribbean. Right. Which was produced by Gore Verbinski and Johnny Depp. And it was an album of sea shanties, like mm-hmm. newly recorded by people such as, and I'll, I'll list down the people who recorded for this album Richard Thompson, wow. Nick, Nick Cave, okay. uh, Loudon Wainwright III, Brian Ferry, Sting, Teddy Thompson, Gavin Friday. Eliza Carthy, Bono, Lucinda Williams, and last but not least, oh shit, I've lost it now. I found someone who was like, oh, John C. Riley, Right. And that's just the first disc. The second disc has more by London Rain, Nick Cave, Brian Ferry, Ricky Jay, and Richard Green. That can't be the same one. That can't be the same person. That's too weird and coincidental. <laughs> Ed Harcourt, Van Dyke Parks. Uh, Jarvis Cocker, Lou Reed, Ralph Steadman. That can't be the Ralph Steadman, can it? Must Maybe. Be. It must be. Now, that is an album that exists, Sid. Wow. Uh, of sea shanties, inspired by the film Pirates of the Caribbean, but featuring Nick Cave and Bono, <laughs> plus other people. And yeah, it's called Rogue's Gallery, which is wow. such a weird thing to exist. But there you go, that that happened. And only I remember it. I've, I've said this to so many people and they're like, no, you're making that up. Oh, it does exist. Wow, that certainly gives us something to uh, mention in terms of adding to the, the legend of Ricky Jay. I, I need to check to see if that is actually Ricky Jay. <laughs> I've clicked on them on Amazon and that is his only musical song that they have on Amazon Music. So, And it doesn't mention it on his, on his Wikipedia. Oh, hang on, he did appear in no it is him it is him he performed the fiddler with richard green 
on the Sea Shanty compilation Rogues Gallery. Wow. So there you go. Uh, he also appeared in the music video for Bob Dylan's song, Tweedledee and Tweedledum, on the right. album Love and Theft. <laughs> this is a great Ricky Jay story. During the production of the video, a screwdriver reportedly fell from the rafters and lodged in Jay's hand. <laughs> <laughs> and he's also performed in uh, a video for Jerry Garcia. Right. There we go. What what a thing. 